Welcome back to the Northeast Newscast. This week, publisher Michael Bushnell sits down with Glenn North, the Kansas City Museum's Director of Inclusive Learning and Creative Impact. They have a conversation about Black history in Kansas City, Missouri, including topics like the African American Heritage Trail, the Green Book for Negro Travelers, and some of the practices businesses followed during the 1940s and beyond. This episode of the Northeast Newscast was made possible by Shemeika's Online Market in Delhi and Seaburg Mufflers. Thanks for tuning in. It's a meandering conversation that hits a lot of high points in today's ongoing conversation about race. Joseph Harder, uh, that's that's internal to the Kansas City streetcar company. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. He was, uh, Joseph Harder was the first person in the streetcar company to mm-hmm. make it to 25 years. Okay. So they made, they named the company, mm-hmm. or they, excuse me, they named that club gotcha, after gotcha. him. Uh-huh. So that's once you got 25 years in, mm-hmm. that's you joined that club. So yeah. there's in this particular case, okay. that's the black version of that. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So when they had yeah. like this, the banquet here was held in the Elks Club at 1600 mm-hmm. East 18th Street, mm-hmm. which was right up the street mm-hmm. from the streets. Yeah, sure, sure. And uh-huh. so it's just it. And then the the all of the all the white people mm-hmm. they went down to like the Hotel President mm-hmm. or the Mule mm-hmm. and it was obviously a much bigger deal. Yeah, or a much bigger crowd. Mm-hmm. Same deal. That points to that whole separate but mm-hmm. equal kind of thing until you get <laughs> until you get to here mm-hmm. and this is the honor roll of the drivers mm-hmm. and you kind of look and go well wait um, maybe maybe there's someone the- nope <laughs> so it's kind of yeah <laughs> you know, so what did they do they, they were they had they had uh, job titles like you know car hustler, mm. so you moved cars around the street yard mm. or uh, night cleaners, mm. or, and it was always that you gotta hate to say it maybe relegated to the back room mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. job. Sure, you still yeah. had a job with rail with a streetcar company, mm-hmm. but what was it? It wasn't driving. It yeah. wasn't being a a conductor or anything like that. So you know what's interesting, Mike? I don't know if that conversation is already being had, but since there you know, deep into this expansion of the streetcar, I wonder if there's any discussion of that because I know, like, when I worked with the folks, um, I'm trying to think of who, I'm trying to think of their names. I've, I've not been around them in the past year or so, and I'm, I should, oh gosh, Donna, I think, and uh, Donna Mandelbaum. Yeah, Mandelbaum, and then there's one other young lady. But like they, um, you know how they they wrap the streetcars. Mm-hmm. They they do programming on the streetcars. Right. They seem to be very like progressive in terms of that particular department. It might be interesting to see if they want to connect this history that you're sharing with this expansion to kind of fold that in in some way. I think, and I'll reach out to Donna. I think it's, I think it's a cool piece of history. Yeah, absolutely. Because so many people, when they see that Mm -hmm. aspect of it and they think, Oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we're doing so well. Mm -hmm. Look at us uh, because we're, we're trying to be as inclusive as humanly possible. Mm Look how far we've come since this is just this is from 1945. Right, right. In terms of when you look at the safety honor roll of the operators and drivers Mm -hmm. of the streetcar, you know, there's there is not one single person of color in here. Yeah. But when you look at 
today, mm-hmm. your bus drivers and your streetcar operators, mm-hmm. it's almost done a, a 100% yeah. reversal. Yeah, yeah. So with, how does... I don't know. How does that work? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. What, does, what does that speak to? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't either. Uh, but I, I do think that, um, you know, as as attitudes change. Right. So this is this is great work. But, you know, we're talking about the 40s. And as things progress, I think there's probably more of a shift in terms of what's considered the hierarchy of, you know, um, employment. I think things start moving more toward toward like office, corporate kind of spaces. And this starts to be viewed more as kind of like blue collar mm-hmm. or, you know, everyday Joe kind of work as opposed to the executive or the, you know, the person who's in middle management or something. That's just me, you know, just kind of thinking about how, you know, shifts have changed in terms of what careers we respect or what's considered to be more... I don't want to use the word noble, but you know what I mean? More respectable work. You know, uh, somebody who's in sanitation versus somebody who's, you know, working at a credit card company. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I, and I guess maybe from my standpoint mm-hmm. and I guess my uh, tenure in this world, mm-hmm. all 62 years ago. <laughs> right, right. Um, I look at it a little bit different mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, I don't care if you're driving a trash truck yeah. or if you're processing credit cards, mm-hmm. you're making an honest income yeah. and, and you deserve the respect Certainly. of, of everybody else. I'm not, mm-hmm. trying, I guess what's the old adage. I get, I get along better with the guys that are Absolutely. building the houses <laughs> not here working in the road sure, sure. Than, than I do some of these hot shots right. in, in, uh, in the high towers downtown. Certainly. Um, and, and that's just my comfort level. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think I think it would be an interesting conversation to have in terms of you know look at the history and where you've come to where you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I guess from that standpoint, what and, and I said it in my question, you know, that, um, what what have we made great strides? Yeah, have yeah. We, so I think certainly we have made strides. <laughs> Great. I'm not, I don't know if I would use that particular modifier, but, um, you know, if we look at what's happening right now, um, and I don't say this in a cavalier fashion, but in a post George Floyd America, one of the things that I think change not necessarily in, you know, systems of education and employment and politics per se, but just in terms of the kind of the zeitgeist of the time is that in the protests that we saw in the summer of 2020, I saw a lot of white people protesting. During that time, you know, some of it was, I can't even say the word performative, but I think some of it was authentic in that especially young people uh, who are not as caught up in race or who have not been as conditioned to think race is such a huge factor, um, were more open to this idea that there is a system in place that benefits white people and disenfranchises black people and people of color. I think that there was an awakening in the minds of enough white people that I do believe that there is there has been a, a, a cultural shift. 
I don't know how significant that shift is. I don't know how long that shift will last, but it does seem to me that I am being invited into more and more white spaces to have this conversation. And that that is encouraging. Talk about what the, yeah. white spaces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what do you mean when you say white spaces? How about Ararat, Missouri? <laughs> <You're> <laughs> white. <laughs> How about Little Dixie? Yeah, so, uh, you know, um, shortly after uh, George Floyd got murdered, uh, I got a, a call from a, a close friend of mine, Clarence Smith, who is... Uh, jazz musician and he teaches at Penn Valley and I got to know him really well when we were working when I worked at the jazz museum he had a a, a jazz festival that he held there mm-hmm. um, every year and you know we would work together and just you know just a, a, a good guy and he is from Marshall Missouri which is not far from Arrow Rock and has been really fascinated with the history of this very small town uh, which is uh, halfway between here and Columbia right. Missouri and its history as it pertains to the presence of black people there. And um, right now in Ararat, there are actually 50, population 52. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's just that small. But its history is that at one time it had the potential to be kind of a thriving town, um, you know, as, um, you know, the, the Missouri, you know, uh, trade was happening along the Missouri. And, um, you know, so there were black people living there, but as the Civil War, uh, you know, the, the the idea of slavery and, and, you know, Missouri and where Missouri stood as it pertained to slavery. Um, so we know Missouri was a slave state. And what um, him and Han trying to get at is that there were certain parts of Missouri that were particularly aligned with Confederacy. Right. And so um, that strip of Missouri where Arrow Rock is located is one of those places. And so it's referred to as Little Dixie. And, you know, there had been some incidents of racial violence. And so by the time the 70s roll around, there's just no black people that live in Aaron Rock. No. No. And so um, there's a group of So interestingly enough, there's a theater in Aaron Rock. The Lyceum. The Lyceum. Right. Um, and I can't remember the gentleman's name who started it, but he's like had connections with Broadway and mm-hmm. decided I'm going to build a theater here. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, this small town becomes kind of a hub uh, for like a theater community. So you've got actors that are starting, to, mm-hmm. you know, at least for theater season, they're living in Arrow Rock. They've got dorms where those actors can stay and people travel there. And so it kind of creates this little arts community this kind of little haven uh, for very forward-thinking people in this this small town. So fast forward to summer 2020, a woman there, um, Nancy Blossom, uh, had read a book uh, called... Gosh, Persimmon Creek. And uh, this Persimmon Creek was basically like a Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn uh, uh, type book. But the main characters were two black children, Mm -hmm. a brother and a sister, who had come from Kansas City, right? And had gone there to live with their grandmother. And so just kind of details their adventures in Arrow Rock. And it really, as as flawed as an attempt as it was, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because the author, whose name is escaping me right now, now, um, you know, attempted to incorporate dialect, you know, black dialect. And from what I understand, she really studied it to try to be authentic. But I don't know. There were just certain things that just 
were a little problematic, but overall, I think her project was to start with children, humanizing black children, and so that hopefully children who are reading that book might see black people differently. And so Nancy Blossom, summer of 2020, is like, we need to do something, and we need to do something in the arts, because I feel like the arts resonate with people. And they decided to start this artists and writers residency in Arrowrock to specifically bring in black artists of all different disciplines to explore the history of Arrowrock and to create some kind of artistic expression of that history or what happened during their experiences there, that kind of thing. So I'm in Arrowrock for two weeks. I'm the inaugural um, uh, poet to get accepted into this residency. Um, Clarence Smith is the one who kind of suggested me. There were several people that they thought about. But anyway, so I ended up being the first. And um, yeah, I was down there for two weeks by myself, man. And so... <laughs> you know, my buddy got married at yeah. Arrowrock Chapel. And I, and I know... Okay. That the, there ain't nothing there. Yeah, there's yeah, zero. yeah. You're and right. You got to go to Marshall, or, exactly, exactly. You know, any one of them, Blackwater, yeah. or any yeah, of the other. Sure, just to get to, to get a candy bar or a soda. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so uh, there's this little cottage that uh, she refurbished that used to be the Black Parsonage, and you know, very quaint. And you know, while that small group of people. Uh, who invited me there for the residency uh, were very welcoming. Uh, my thoughts each night as, you know, uh, I was trying to write or whatever, and it's just very still, you know, I'm starting to think about now who here doesn't want me here? You know, who lives in amongst these people that might have a problem with this, you know, residency and what um, the Persimmon Creek residency organizers uh, are trying to do. And it was a, uh, I don't know. It was just very much an opportunity to, to, in a different kind of way, empathize with, you know, people like Megger Evers or people like, um, gosh, Fannie Lou Hamer or people who were actually putting their bodies in physical danger to try to create change. I'm certainly not trying to say that my experience was anywhere near as, 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 difficult or as dangerous as theirs were, but I had a different level of understanding being mm-hmm. in that space for that period of time. And so um, I know I'm kind of going on and on, but during that experience, I just decided to just interact with the town to to walk around. Uh, there was a guy across the street named Buzzy who had a golf cart and I would, you know, he'd show me around and, and Buzzy was, you know, very white, like unapologetically, but just a good guy and, you know, and, and you know, pro- raised different than me and from a different generation. Uh, but yeah, we, we got along famously and as it was with a lot of other people that I interacted with and, you know, I sat on porches and drank lemonade and, you know, uh, the the morning uh, that I was uh, getting well not the morning but the the afternoon that I was getting ready to leave as I was coming out of the the, the cottage that I was staying in there was like uh, you know uh, Arrowrock they have these great pecan trees so there were like these bags of pecans mm-hmm. and uh, somebody had made me this big uh, kind of like your grandmother used to make in the mason jar like soup. <laughs> And and uh, one of the ladies there is an, an artist, and you know she had drawn a like a small painting, uh, you know, of me uh, when I, you know, like I did a presentation at the Lyceum Theater right. at the end of the residency, and she did her 
artistic rendering of that. And it was just like this little kind of, you know, hey, we appreciated you being here. Uh, so that's one. And that was obviously very significant, you know, for me. And I now have a relationship, you know, with this town. I'm going to go back for a series that they do called The Voices of Arrow Rock. And, you know, they've commissioned me to, to write a poem for that. So that was an interesting experience. The other thing was to uh, do a Black History Month presentation uh, at the Kansas City branch of the FBI. You know, I know. <laughs> I know, I know, okay. I know, I know. So that that was an experience. And then, like I said, I don't want to just keep rambling, but I was also invited to do a presentation. Um, gosh, what is her name? Robin DiAngelo. She wrote a book called uh, Why Fragility. Mm -hmm. uh, that really gained a lot of popularity, um, you know, the summer of 2020. It was kind of like just blowing up all over the place. Everybody was like, you need to read this book. And basically, you know, here's a white woman saying that white fragility is, you know, in essence, you know, the fear that many white people have talking about race mm -hmm. and how, you know, harmful they feel it is to them when, like, who's actually <laughs> experienced the real danger and harm when we talk about racism. And so she kind of tries to, to, to talk to um, a white audience about being more open to racist, I mean, conversations around race. So I had to do, I was asked to do a virtual presentation for about five to 600 uh, lawyers all over the country um, it was a, a, a forum specifically uh, dealing with race, but the audience was probably 70 percent white male. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's what I'm talking about. Right. And so uh, my friend, I have a friend who's a poet and he said for things to change, one of the strategies, strategies we need to employ is to, to occupy whiteness. Right. And to, to go into these spaces, you know, obviously a play on uh, Occupy Wall Street. Right. But anyway, right. To, to go into spaces uh, that are that are primarily white and have these conversations, because quite frankly, um, the culture is not going to change in the way that it needs to without white people being on board. I mean, that's just that's just the reality. And ultimately, you know, it, it's kind of weird, but you know, if you look at it historically, although it hasn't been stated explicitly, I don't think it seems like black people are always expected to fix racism when it's not our problem in terms of its origin, you know, we, we are impacted by it, but we're not the ones who, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that take that and I'll, I'll take that in a, in a little bit different direction. It, yeah. It's not your problem, but you, you guys didn't invent it. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's been, it's been yeah. around and we didn't invent it. Yeah. It, it's been around, but I think it's been, I think the, the focus, mm -hmm. at least in the United States Certainly. is uh, just, for the sake of the table conversation mm. is you and me mm. and that's what the focus is on and we yeah. lose sight of of you know going back mm. you know 500 years a thousand years two thousand years mm. and it, it existed in it existed here but not in the way that we know it right and it existed you know overseas in, in a much different way mm -hmm. but it, it was, it's the same animal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I think that that focus on it and I think that's where at least 
<laughs> that's where you lose people. Yeah, I am. It's not my problem. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and they point to somebody yeah. like you and say, yeah. "Well, it's your problem." Yeah. <laughs> wait, exactly. wait, hold on. Let's just yeah. let's take a look at it. And yeah, let's make this global mm-hmm. and and take a take a big picture look mm-hmm. at it, and then maybe we can start to fix the the various facets. Yeah, yeah, that, that lead to that. I agree. Um, I know that talk about the occupying the whiteness. That's the first mm-hmm. time I've ever heard that term. And you, you spoke a little bit about the protests mm-hmm. and about like the occupy whiteness mm-hmm. thing, getting into white spaces. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference? And I'm just going to drop this guy's name because I yeah. grew up with his family in Parkville. Okay. And all it's just a top shelf family. Mm-hmm. And, um, is there a difference between what, say, for example, the leaders of the protests in 2020 uh, did and do versus somebody, say, for example, like Lieutenant Commander Keith Hoskins, okay. who was the first black Blue Angels pilot, came from Parkville, Parkville wow. High School, Missouri Western, went uh-huh. to school with him. Okay. And retired Navy. was He retired out of the Blue Angels to become the commander of the Pensacola Naval Base. Okay. NSP, Naval Stations, Pensacola. And okay. that's where the Blue Angels But is there a difference? He was quiet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He just, it was like he was grinding. Mm-hmm. And he achieved and achieved and achieved and achieved. And, and basically the pinnacle and fighter pilots. Yeah. But you didn't see him. Mm-hmm. On, a, on the streets of Kansas City or sure. on the streets of anywhere else. <laughs> right, right, right. His, bro- his brother, however, uh, Jason, is a little bit more outspoken. Yeah, yeah. A uh, good friend of mine. Is there a difference? Is there a difference there? What, and if so, what is? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, they they sure. kind of each chose their. I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm, that's okay. I'm talking <laughs> over you. Uh, that's what happens when we get path. together, man. But yeah, and and I think that you just said it in that choosing their own path. So um, I'll go back to how the question originated with this idea of occupying whiteness, right? So this wasn't like a well-developed ten-point strategy. Uh, this is a friend of mine who's a poet and who was just putting forth an idea in that um, how important it is for us to build relationships with white people who have privilege. And so uh, that can become a really loaded word right now. But, you know, my understanding of privilege is not that white people have not had struggles, not that there hasn't been, you know, we all have to deal with the vicissitudes of life. We all struggle, right? (laughs) That's not the issue. The issue is as a white person, your skin color doesn't add to that. Your skin color doesn't exacerbate it. And in fact, sometimes your skin color may put you in positions um, that people of color and disenfranchised people, you know, are not allowed. And so um, if we can make that conceit, right, um, I think that what people come to understand is even though I might not be quote unquote racist, I am connected to a system and benefit from a system that is. And what is that then? Um, how am I now responsible if, if I understand that? You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? Not really. Take it a step. <laughs> so, I guess- so, yeah. So what I'm saying is, so I think that when you say to a white person, you're racist, I can't handle that. You know, this this whole Joe Rogan debacle, I don't know if you've... 
You know what I mean? I'm just saying. There are a lot of people who, you know, I don't even want to go into much detail, but who have done something that is obviously racist. And the first thing they say is, I don't have a racist bone in my body. That is just really, uh, really a hard, a bitter pill for, you know, the average white person to swallow. But if we say, well, you do have privilege, though, which isn't as bad as saying somebody's a racist. And you say, okay, what does that mean? Well, we live, you know, particularly here in, in America, in a place where each system is set up, whether we're talking about media, entertainment, education, employment, what have you, that in some way has in its operations elements of racism. And more often than not, as a white person, I'm going to benefit from that. If, if an application comes across the desk um, of someone who's hiring, there's studies to support all of this. I can't you know, give you the exact statistics. But if there's, um, um, let's say, a Broderick um, and a Jamal, you know, are the names on the applications. More often than not, Broderick is going to get the phone call for the interview. You know what I mean? These things uh, have been studied. There's statistics to back it up. So then if I am connected to this system or somehow benefit from this system, do I have some responsibility to course correct? And I think that's the conversation we're having now. Is it generational? When you say generational, help me. Is it, it I mean, because I'm, when I look, when I look at something like that mm -hmm. and I look at that situation and I'm, mm -hmm. I, I can't say because, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to use the example. I can't say that I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not a true statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said, do I do everything in my power mm -hmm. to? You know, not go down that road. Yes. Yeah. And probably, I probably overcorrect internally. Yeah. You know, I, I was born in 1959, so you okay. go to scout camp. Yeah. And it's and it's 1970, mm -hmm. and you know, you you hear things, and you know, you get a, you get a chance to interact with different people, and mm -hmm. they're still using that word, and I'm just going, damn man, that's what the, yeah. what the hell? Yeah, sure. And and so I, that's where I guess from that standpoint. I, I just really got to go, okay, back up, go this mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. and, and try my damnedest mm -hmm. to not, to not be yeah. that person. Right, right, right. Everybody's right. pointing at, well, you're just, yeah. you're just this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Um, and so like, say in that situation, if, you know, just using that, anal not analogy, but your real lived experience, if in a situation there had been a black kid that was interested in becoming a scout, right? Would you have wanted to risk, you know, the ire of your, uh, what is it? I don't know what you call it. I wasn't in Boy Scouts. Your troop. Yeah. <laughs> you know what your I mean? Yeah. To, to, and... to stand up for, right. you know, yeah. the 12-year-old black kid that wanted to, to be a part of, for whatever reasons, the 12-year-old the black kid was there, and you see him being ostracized. I'm you know, going with it. And yeah. I, from my character and the way that I was raised, yes, yeah. I'm going to be that yeah. guy going yeah. over there going, get, yeah. get, leave the kid alone. Right, right, right. Let him, let him be a kid. Yeah. So you are who we want. <laughs> <laughs> Do I pass? <laughs> oh, 
but that's that's the point my friend was making. So where are the mics in the world? How do we connect with them? You know what I mean? And how do we get their help in trying to turn this thing around? You know? And everybody is not necessarily expected to, to, to give. I mean, that's just not realistic that everybody would give 100% and be willing to risk their careers and lives and all of those things. But I am saying, so maybe in that situation, you, you really painted a great picture with that. Because one of the things I've often said is, no, you may not be out marching in the streets. And I'm talking about when I'm talking to white people. Right. But, you know, when you're at, you know, the family gathering at Christmas and, you know, one of your cousins is wanting to tell black jokes and, and use the N-word, might you... <laughs> I'm getting to the eyeball. Oh, my God. You know, might you the use drunk that opportunity, uncle. yeah, the to, to have a conversation with mm-hmm. your family that could help in some way, you know, uh, kind of get us closer to where we all would uh, think, hope to be. So, um, I have historically worked in black institutions. Uh, started off at the American Jazz Museum, then the Black Archives, was the director of Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center um, and made the decision then to come to the Kansas City Museum, which many would consider to be. So I see what you just did there. You did that loop back there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, uh, a, a, a white institution, the perception, you know, whether or not that is the aim and goal of the museum at this point, which I can say that it isn't, but it is perceived to be a white institution. And most of the people, at least at this stage, who are coming through those doors are going to be uh, white. Right. And so I had to do a lot of thinking, you know, before coming here. And I was convinced that it was the right thing to do based on the direction that Anna Marie Tutera, who's the director, and the team was moving in. And many of the things that I had tried to accomplish in those spaces, I feel can happen here, but can happen here in a way that might impact a different audience that that is an audience that, that needs to be reached, right? So one of the things that would happen when people would come into the Jazz Museum or the um, Black Archives, you know, we talk about stuff like, did you know that you could only go to Fairyland Park one day a year if you were a black person? The Green Book. Yeah, yeah. Or the, yeah, exactly. The, 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 go ahead. And the, <laughs> so all I was going to say is, I can't tell you how many times white people say, well, I never knew that. I never right, knew exactly. that. Yeah. So we all, you know, we all lose something if, if, if there's not a full telling of, you know, the history of a city or the history of this country, uh, because that's valuable information that we all should have access to. And so having said that, um, it, it hit me that people who were coming into those, they were already seeking that knowledge out. You know what I mean? They were already at a place where they were at least like, hmm, uh, you know what I mean? I want to learn more about black culture mm-hmm. and perhaps uh, increase my cultural competency, right? But since I've been here, there has been kind of this, oh, white people who were not necessarily coming for that experience of hearing, you know, the stories or, or you know, in our, in our content, the representation of indigenous people and immigrants and all of these voices that come into play uh, when we're telling this story about Kansas City's history. I've seen several people really surprised. And, you know, 
Go ahead. What were you going to say, Mike? And I was just going to say, so those people, right? <laughs> if I'm in a space where I can kind of pull them along a little bit, if they were, you know, uncomfortable or, you know, kind of taken aback, um, I think... I'm going to reach a lot more of those people in this space than I would at the jazz museum. So it's just to me, this is just an extension of the work I've been doing all these years, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And to get back to the origin of the question, I am, in a sense, occupying whiteness. And that was Glenn North, Kansas City Museum Director of Inclusive Learning and Creative Impact with Northeast News publisher Michael Bushnell. Thanks for listening to the Northeast Newscast. And thank you once again to our sponsors, Shemekas Online Market in Delhi and Seaburg Mufflers. For all our Northeast Newscast episodes, articles, and more, visit northeastnews.net. For the Northeast News, I'm Abby Hoover. Mm-hmm.